Welcome to Hemp Barons today, Garrett Graff. It's wonderful to have you with us. Thank you for having me, Joy. Always great to be here with you. I've gotten to do so much really fantastic nonprofit advocacy work with you. I have worked with clients and employers who, of course, use Hoban Law Group uh, and and you as their uh, primary counsel for all manner of their business, everything from specifically hemp-related questions, but to IP, uh, corporate advice, employment issues. Hoban Law Group is a full-service firm, a shining firm in all forms of cannabis, not just a national leader, but an international leader. And we've got here with us you, the managing partner of HLG. Uh, Again, we're so glad to have you and your expertise here with us today, Garrett. Uh, Right back to you, Joy. Always a pleasure to work with you and thank you for all the kind words. Uh, It's a pleasure. Ah, my honor. And, And I'm so glad to be able to say them, brother. You are a treasure. Let's start, if we could, with the USDA final rule on hemp, which, of course, uh, went into effect just last month, March 22nd, after receiving 5,900 plus public comments to their interim final rule. Those comments, of course, not just coming from stakeholders across the country at every aspect of the supply chain, but also state and federal legislators, lawmakers, regulators, uh, and even the U.S. Small Business Administration chiming in to say, hey, what, what happened here? And as you know, and most of us in the industry know, thanks to former USDA Secretary Sonny, Perdue, Sonny Perdue's testimony before Congress last year, the U.S. Drug Enforcement Administration, or DEA, had very much intervened, I'll go so far as to say interfered <laughs> with the drafting uh, of those rules, and, uh, and there was just major, major pushback. From your perspective, could you give us a little rundown on what you see as some of the main, major improvements and changes in the final rule and uh, a couple of the things we still need to work on? Oh, absolutely, Joy. And, and you're always one for choice words, uh, in, interference uh, uh, or intervening or whatnot. Uh, but sure, I mean, in terms of the, you know, the interim final rule versus the final rule, you know, I know that many are you know, somewhat disappointed and understandably so in, in the finished product. I think there's a lot of factors that play into that everything from uh, the expediency with which the government was trying to move through regulation for the commodity they hadn't dealt with in decades right or wrong um you know covid uh, related impacts as well uh and then ultimately as you said you know some political behind the scenes factors uh amongst multiple different agencies uh, and then of course federal state and local you know in terms of the the final rule itself some of the things that it addresses uh, you know of course the testing facility a requirement for the DEA testing facility is obviously you know, one uh, champion point that we can point to in terms of, hey, uh, the government listened to us. They understood some of the issues with respect to mandating uh, the, the testing facility requirement as being DEA registered. But then, you know, you start looking at uh, some of the other factors within the final rule, and there's certainly some you know, problems. Uh, for example, uh, looking at the 0.3% uh, standard, which, of course, is statutory and USDA could not itself uh, manage or change. The total THC standard uh, referencing decarboxylation uh, that is, of course, challenging in, in and of its own right. Um, total THC, of course, you know, being where you combine Delta 9 THC as well as then THCA uh, or 88% of it. Uh, and so, it, you know, it, it becomes more challenging for farmers. Uh, those are just a, a handful of some of the things that you know, were addressed as part of the final rule. At the end of the day, I, I think a mixed bag is a way to, to characterize it. Of, you know, we've seen some successes. We've seen some things that still need to be worked on, 
uh, to, to make the industry more palatable. Um, but at the end of the day, it's what we're faced with, uh, uh, right or wrong right now. We have to find a way to navigate through it. And about the DEA registered labs, we basically got a reprieve, right? Yes. They didn't remove the requirement. They said by December 31st, I think, 2022. Correct. We're going to put this and a sort of a legislative fix that would literally prohibit the requirement. And that is being worked on that that is going to happen. And, and I think that a lot of folks don't understand that it's it's fairly untenable even for your final official test. But I think it's important to realize and, and correct me if I'm wrong here, Garrett, that that would apply to even informal TH testing throughout the growing season is my understanding as opposed to just some official test, it would be all tests, including your informal tests, would need to be conducted by a lab that is registered with a DEA. I think more information will, will be coming out, as you rightfully point out, right? It's this reprieve, you know, and, and it provides more time, which is good in the sense that it allows us to figure out more things as opposed to act in a rushed manner and just to implement something. Um, and so I think more information will come out over the course of the next year or so in terms of how this is actually going to work. Uh, because both on the government standpoint, uh, on the government side of things, as well as on the industry side of things, there's a lot of pieces that need to be moved and put into play uh, in order to, to make that work. As you said, it's very untenable as it stands right now. There's a lot of challenges in, in, in obtaining and maintaining those registrations and not affecting other streams of revenue and uh, for a testing facility, et cetera. Uh, in terms of you know formal versus informal tests, certainly for the formal tests, the ones that matter, the ones that declare something to be hemp, uh, that's crucially important. Whether, uh, you know, I, I don't necessarily want to speculate offhand in terms of uh, down the road, whether informal ones will be prohibited from other testing facilities or, for example, like internal, uh, you know, uh, sampling and testing, for example. I think that that may be subject to further detail and or advocacy. Certainly advocacy and detail. And I, I think I got that. The, the truth be told, of course, I'm an information hoarder, as you are, as anybody in this rapidly developing areas of law are. And so everything that comes in, I, you know, and thank goodness, I'm also an experienced complex civil litigation senior paralegal. So managing information's our us. But, um, yeah. <laughs> but, uh, and I think that I, so every time, whether it was Hoban Law Group, the USDA, any anybody else who came up with a, these are the highlights or this is what changed, I aggregate mm -hmm. all of that, collect all of that. Yeah. Um, and I think I got the piece about the informal testing, also, at least as it sits today or at the time that I yeah. received the email, that it was for informal testing. But again, you, as usual, right on target with more detail, more advocacy, December 31, 2022 is a little bit away that uh, we got 18 months to to get to work uh joy so uh don't don't hold your breath uh, we we gotta you know try to try to make some change uh, happen in the meantime so yep well and you know all good things right now all good things and that also brings me to another aspect i was wondering if you could elaborate on and that of course sure. is uh the methods for remediating um uh, hot hemp or going for a second test? Because I know that we certainly got uh, a couple of wins there. Um, and if you would elaborate on those changes. Yeah, certainly. I mean, some of the things I think we saw positively change in the final rule, things like the, the testing window moving from 15 days to 30 days. Uh, we're talking about potential opportunity for remediation, uh, changing the negligence standard from 0.5 to 1.0. Uh, meaning that you know criminal culpability doesn't begin until I mean it's markedly different to grow something to be 0.3 versus 1.0. Uh, 
0.3 to 0.5 is obviously a much closer margin of error to, to say the least. God. And so certainly I think that that uh, reflects some of the successes that we've had in advocating for uh, our farmers in terms of making sure that they can feel comfortable and confident that they can grow this product and have an opportunity to use it and or remediate it if necessary and not have culp uh, criminal culpability uh, follow from that. So certainly uh, we saw the governmental agencies, particularly the USDA here and listen to us in terms of we need more time for testing. Uh, we need uh, you know, these remediation opportunities to be more broad and available uh, in order that you know, entire crops aren't rendered entirely useless. Uh, that's just a, a deterrent effect, a chilling effect to an entire industry, if that's the case, as well as then you know, a lot of farmers who, you know, uh, they're used to, to growing crops on a farm. They don't want to even think about how they look in orange jumpsuits uh, or whatnot relative to you know, criminal culpability. So I think those certainly outline some of the positive changes that we saw. Um, and it's certainly my hope that some of those will propel further advocacy with the governmental agencies, but also provide you know, some confidence for farmers to continue to produce hemp this year and going forward. Absolutely. And when, and when we talk about the specifically a, a new method for remediation is in that final rule, which I found very interesting, remediation can, recur, can occur by removing and destroying flower material while retaining the stalk, mm -hmm. stems, leaf material, and seeds, or by shredding the entire plant, homogenizing it uh, into a biomass-like material, mm -hmm. then retesting the shredded biomass material for compliance. So that sure. was not allowed previously. Sure. And that is allowed now. Uh, it doesn't, you know, it, it's not a gigantic win, but it's something. It's something. I mean, it, you know, we did something similar in Colorado um, a few years ago in the marijuana industry, actually, where, um, you know, they were simply having to dispose of grind up uh, stock, you know, cannabis stocks uh, that weren't being used in marijuana products. And we were able to, you know, say and prove, hey, we can take these stocks. It doesn't present a you know, public health impact. Uh, and instead of just simply disposing of them and literally having to pay to grind them into dirt, uh, we can take them and put them into the industrial hemp uh, supply chain for fibers and other uses. Obviously, you know, the, the economics of that are, are far different. And so certainly I'm, I'm, I'm mindful that, uh, you know, having to use either of those remedi remediation methods may not allow or afford for the same sort of economic uh, opportunity that, you know, farmers initially had for that crop. It is, it is as, at least you know, some form of opportunity uh, to, to keep moving. Well, you created a, a you created a pathway for innovation yeah. because all of these legal stakes. We, you know, we we talk about the stock like ads ah, a stock, but you and I both know that stock is the world's most valuable biocellulose, and we're being told to destroy yeah. it. So, you know, and and I think the innovation from the legal uh, adult use and and medical cannabis markets, you know, we're just getting started here. But the pop, but the issue is people can't innovate if they if it's unlawful for them to even yeah. innovate. So really, Colorado, and thank you as usual for your groundbreaking leadership there, um, that is tremendous. And all adult use and medical states need to move that forward to begin to at least create a legal pathway for innovation to create value for all of these things. And I think you've heard me say before over the years, brother, I don't believe in byproducts. I, and when it comes to this plant, we have only co-products. We only 
co-products. So we want to do that. Could you also elaborate and then we'll move on to another subject here. Um, but in terms of performance-based sampling, yeah. could you explain to our listeners on the USDA final rule what performance-based sampling is, which is now permitted and definitely a win? Yeah, so uh, that was certainly one of the uh, primary comments. A lot of those 5,000 plus comments uh, uh, that you referenced before that they had is, you know, the sampling and testing protocols outlined were very, very stringent in terms of and restrictive onerously. Uh, so how operators could, in fact, you know, take uh, 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 samples and test them and prove compliance. And so in terms of performance-based sampling, um, the USDA effectively provided an opportunity or a pathway for specific states or regions to, uh, you know, be more nimble in terms of how they evaluate and or allow uh, for samples to be taken and tests to be taken, uh, you know, relative to regional, you know, based factors or, you know, factors that are closer to the quote unquote ground, so to speak, no, no pun intended. Um, uh, but, you know, factors at the USDA at the federal level cannot consistently apply itself uh, across the board. And so in terms of affording for performance-based sampling, uh, it will provide greater flexibility to state departments of agriculture and, term, and in turn the farmers of those states to have input, to have a voice in terms of what sampling does and does not work in those regions for a variety of operational reasons to ensure that you know, it, it all makes sense that there's incentive for farmers to grow, that they can meet the requirements and that state departments of agriculture can, you know, maintain that program. And, and to elaborate, uh, you know, we have states that are now coming up with lists of prohibited varieties or varieties of concern. And, and, yet, and yet they also are aware of varieties that are already becoming tried and true or have been. And to give an example for the listeners of performance-based sampling, what we mean here in the United States in our, in our 50 little countries that comprise, you know, uh, the mainland here um, and Alaska and Hawaii, in Canada, they've got provinces, but basically federal law that has been governing and regulating the hemp industry since 1998. And in the last few years or so, although things are going by so fast, it's probably in the last four years now, after multiple years of regulation, the Health Canada, which still regulates the crop, it's not some Ministry of Agriculture, it's Health Canada's Office of uh, Controlled Substances that um, that is really monitoring this crop and regulating this crop, but they, in that country... Um, but they allow for a basically a waiver where if a if a variety has tested below 0.2% THC bearing in mind delta 9 bearing in mind that clearly the definition in Canada is 0.3 but this is the bar for the criteria for it to be on on a on a special list if that variety has tested at 0.2 or below D9 THC for three years, it no longer is requires uh, that that testing and sampling. It is now sort of free to be planted and move around the country. And, and that's what we're talking about with performance-based sampling here. It sounds to me like the USDA is saying to states, use your best judgment on, on creating a system of where your limited resources should be best spent sampling fields to make sure that they are compliant within the amount of THC that is allowed for a hemp plant. Uh, certainly. I think that's, that's well said, Joy. I mean, certainly seed certification is, is a part of that in terms of creating confidence. Uh, I think the confidence level established by the final rule is 95%. 
um, you know, it, it is that confidence they're looking for. That's kind of that what's being referenced in, uh, by Health Canada standards is three years. Um, you know, similarly, some states in the U.S. have created seed certification programs or processes. Admittedly, it's been challenging uh, to figure out all the factors, you know, uh, climate factors, varietal factors, you know, regional factors, et cetera. And so it's been a slow moving process in terms of, you know, what seeds can or cannot be certified and, and provide, uh, you know, that sort of integrity of data uh, necessary. And as you've you know, suggested, it's also led to, uh, you know, some varietals being uh, discouraged, if not prohibited. Uh, just given the proclivity for exceeding 0.3%, which, you know, again, can be a very touchy standard. Very much so. Very much so. So I think that is that is a, a pretty good win that we got there for the states, especially considering resources and especially considering that the USDA is still main mandating sampling agents now, uh, which which they define. And the, and the reality is, you know, in Health Canada has never once said, oh, we're taking this on. You know, they don't have a ton of resources. It's a very large country spread out in population. Popul- population. Uh, so they actually created more jobs and said, here, licensed agrologists, and I know here we call them agronomists, but in Canada, for some reason, they're agrologists, but licensed agrologists can apply to become THC field samplers and then have an additional stream of revenue for themselves because Health Canada isn't doing it. The licensed THC field samplers are doing it, but interesting stuff in any event. Let's move on to another subject, which of course, um, is creating a, a bit of a groundswell now and a momentum. Uh, and I, I certainly understand the urge for folks to say, hey, let's increase, let's let's change the definition of hemp uh, to 1% THC. And when we're talking about THC right now, we're talking about Delta 9. Um, because it's a no-brainer. It will increase biodiversity, and, and that is certainly true. Nobody could argue with that. Um, it will increase biodiversity. It will, you know, give our farm, it will give our, our farmers a break so they can continue to grow extract hemp, dot, 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 and I suppose continue to lose their shirts growing extract hemp because we're realizing, of course, and have known for some time that it takes only a little bit of hemp to make a whole lot of hemp extract and distillate. Um, and we don't, we want our farmers who are the real heroes here, who we have nothing without them, without getting those seeds in the ground for these trillion dollar industries, which are fiber and grain. And as we build that infrastructure, they will come online. Um, Without them, we, we have nothing and we need for them to have successful experiences and and we need to support them every step of the way to do that. And so folks say, hey, let's increase to 1%, increase biodiversity, give the farmers a break, we'll have more options. Um, and, and the reality is that there are lots of really important factors to consider uh, as we, as a nation, um, choose whether or not we're going to move forward with uh, the 1% increase or not, particularly bearing in mind that while the definition of hemp under which we live today, and this is a wonderful, incredible definition, it, it still hadn't had the scientific sophistication to deal with our reality. It named a plant. It was within the farm bill. It basically defined a plant. The definition itself lives within the Agricultural Marketing Act of 1946, not the Food, Drug, and Cosmetic Act or anything like that. It it created a a plant with 0.3% THC. 
which is 3,000 parts per million, bearing in mind that uh, 1% is 10,000 parts per million. So I, I think in many ways, we didn't have all the science, but we got this great definition. I think things are going to change as the science comes out and, and everything starts to settle down. And we certainly don't want to see, no. <laughs> go. we're not going backwards with prohibitions. We just need to dial in the science. So talk to us a little bit about what you see as concerns and important things to consider while we have the discussion on should we increase this definition? Yeah, it's a it's a really challenging issue uh, in, in a certain respect, Joy. I mean, certainly you point out uh, one, absolutely there are challenges presented day, to, uh, you know, day in, day out to our farmers in terms of how they can grow hemp without you know, uh, being challenged of having to, to forcibly lose their crop and or face criminal culpability. Thankfully, we've you know, at least in part solved the criminal culpability issue for now by raising that you know, negligence standard. But still, it, it, it leaves the challenge of, you know, if you uh, grow above 0.3% outside the margin of error, uh, you know, then you're forced into the remediation protocols, which still, again, you know, devalues your crop. And as you said, there's already economic challenges, you know, in terms of the production of hemp. Uh, in terms of, you know, the groundswell support, I, I certainly think that there's growing support for, you know, changing the definition in some form or fashion. I also think uh, it's more complicated than people may uh, give credit to. You know, first of all, you pointed out you know, some of these uh, components of the definitional uh, issues, you know, as it stands today, we have a 0.3% standard that applies to both the, the uh, grown and produced crop, as well as to finished goods and, you know, some of the extracts and whatnot being derived therefrom. Certainly, we want both of those to be lawful, but to your point, is the same numeric, numerical standard appropriate for both of those things? You know, that may be something that needs to be addressed, especially with some of the product types hitting the market right now um, that are below 0.3% THC, but you know, present some you know, product liability concerns uh, in the marketplace. Uh, from a you know, more political standpoint, I think it's important to understand, you know, Delta 9 versus total THC. Of course, many, many people don't like uh, total THC, given that it's a more expansive standard. I also think, though, however, it will be more challenging to uh, amend the definition to 1.0% delta 9, which in effect means close to 2.0% total THC, um, you know, which, you know, that, that's not a factor loss on a lot of advocacy groups and frankly, the marijuana lobby, uh, you know, and, that, and so to a certain extent, we have to understand that, you know, we have this cousin uh, of the plant, right? You know, a, a separate variety of the same genus that has been our friend slash cousin for years upon years now, and yet this effort potentially flies right in the face of that friendship or that, <laughs> that familial relationship uh, in the sense that it, it, it misaligns the interests. And so I think that there's going to have to be a, a lot of uh, thought given to how we can approach that. It also you know, presses on the idea of whole plant regulation, right? As opposed to you know, trying to change how hemp is regulated and how marijuana is legalized or not and how it's regulated. Uh, it, it then calls into question, well, shouldn't we just regulate by you know, intended use uh, that helps resolve some of these problems? That's a much bigger picture you know, solution, but it's also a much bigger problem uh, and, and many more complications to solve legislatively uh, in DC right now. So that, what that means is it takes more time to, to get there. In the short term, you know, I think you know, trying to find or identify incremental changes that we can provide you know, shorter term relief to our farmers and to the hemp industry uh, is important. 
Um, certainly, I mean, you know, there, there remain these practical challenges of, of the 0.3%. We also have to then be mindful of what will that take? That's a statutory fix, not a regulatory one. USDA can't do that on their own. It requires Congress to act um, or, you know, I guess perhaps a presidential uh, executive order and then corresponding changes at each of the state levels too. So uh, all that said, I mean, that, that's just, I think three things offhand in terms of some of the, the challenges or, or factors needing to be considered. You know, I certainly think that a, a change is welcome and due. Uh, I think, you know, certainly anything we can do to support our farmers and, our, uh, and the industry is helpful, but we also have to be careful for what we wish for, because uh, depending on what the proposed changes are, um, you know, that, that may carry with it uh, much, you know, greater consequences is the wrong word, but complications in terms of how that interrelates with marijuana um, over the course of the next three, five, 10 years of regulation. So I think what I want to do is just sort of drill into some of these issues to, to really help to expand the collective knowledge base of the listeners and, and the audience and sure. the growing hemp Absolutely. industry, right? And, and a lot of folks, so the, the quick background on how did we come up with 0.3? Now, many folks, they'll, they'll say, oh, it was some arbitrary number, but they don't really under, understand. Now, that was Dr. Ernest Small um, from Canada, who is now the principal research scientist for agriculture. Agriculture and Agri-Food Canada, um, you know, he was put into this position of having to come up with something, point three it is, without going into a, a ton of science here, because I want to keep this focused on law and regulation, that is a, a number that, that he came up with along with Arthur Cronquist, who was his co-researcher, that was published in 1976, actually, in the Netherlands-based scientific journal Taxon, a practical and natural taxonomy for cannabis. (laughs) That's 10 times fast. Yeah, really. (laughs) So uh, now, however, of course, Ernest Small often says, and, and has been quoted as saying in 2018, when the 2018 Farm Bill passed, he was uh, interviewed and said, hey, 0.3% is very conservative. And my skepticism today, bearing in mind, this was now from 1976 to 2018, he's making this quote, my skepticism today is if we were to adopt a criterion for non-abusive use of the plant, such as for oilseed, an important product, I'd suggest 1% as a more reasonable criterion. He also says uh, that, however, 1% is more reasonable because that is the point at which they see intoxication. So to your point, intoxication. And what I want to uh, give by way of a, I wish we could do it visually, but we're going to do it audibly here, a a comparison for for the listeners to understand that, again, 0.3% is 3,000 parts per million, but 0.3% of a total product could end up being, you know, 3, 0.3% of a total product results in a Delta 9 THC, should you want to take it there, that can absolutely cause intoxication. We have seen already legal hemp extract products. They're in huge volume, thus the, thus the ability to increase the milligrams of THC. 
but that have 10 milligrams of Delta 9 THC in them. Now, for a gal like me, <laughs> it's going to take a whole lot of that uh, to, to have an effect on me. But for the average person, particularly someone who has never consumed cannabis or THC before, 10 milligrams of THC may very well have a tremendous effect on them. Sometimes five or two milligrams could on, on a, a certain person. So, which is putting states in the position of sophisticated states of saying, gee, I, I, I wonder if we're going to need to put a cap, as New York has, uh, on the amount of milligrams of Delta 9 THC that can be in a product, because under this definition, there can be a whole lot. And my, my way of comparing is to, is to let folks know that in the European Union, by and large, in a finished product, Three parts per million of THC is what is allowed in a finished hemp product. In Germany, five ppm is what's allowed in hemp seed oil. Australia and New Zealand, five to 10 parts per million for whole, hulled, and processed seed cake. 10 is for the hemp seed oil. Uh, in Canada, it's 10 ppm for hemp seed food ingredients. And for Switzerland, it's 10 to 20 ppm parts per million for whole and hulled. Here, we're looking at this 3,000 0.3% weird definition that didn't take into account finished products, but rather took into account the definition of the plant. So, so we're dealing with that. And, and further comparison, in terms of the total Delta 9 THC daily intake determination, and, and right now, as you most likely well know, Garrett, uh, IA, the European Industrial Hemp Association, which does a lot of the heavy lifting for the whole planet, um, is doing embargo working on a study uh, to, to create uh, research and science on uh, a, what a PPM of Delta 9 THC could, would actually on an average human being, et cetera, uh, cause intoxication. But in the EU right now, they're saying basically 90 PPM per day. In Croatia, 540 PPM per day on this is a daily intake of THC. Switzerland, Australia, and New Zealand are saying 630 PPM per day. And Canada is saying 1,260 PPM. Again, this is not the definition of what goes into a finished product. This is this is a separate statistic of what these different countries have determined as a safe total D9 THC daily intake determination. And here we are in America again with this 3,000. Well, if we go to 1%, it's 10,000 parts per million. So surely we would not want this increase to affect finished products. It, what do you think about that? Yeah, I mean, the, the question I was going to ask you, uh, uh, Joy, is is this intended or proposed change for 1.0% to help our farmers or for finished product, right? And I think in all likelihood, we probably can't have both. It's very easy if we disconnect the two, uh, and that may be a short-term pathway, is by disconnecting the two, you can say for purposes of production only, uh, you know, production meaning, you know, cultivation by farmers, we grow up to, you know, 1.0%. Delta 9 versus total THC, I still anticipate there's going to be some, um, you know, argument over, uh, you know, which of those standards apply. But regardless, I think that we would welcome either of those changes, right, you know, uh, in the sense that it would greatly expand for our farmers. Uh, but to your point, you know, in terms of for finished products, I actually anticipate we may well see uh, the regulation going downward to, you know, to the point uh, and the examples that, you know, you referenced, A, you know, New York has put in place uh, potency caps. 
think more states are starting to uh, you know look at potency caps as well as also then just labeling you know the potency to make it well known. But uh, from the perspective of the number I hear is two milligrams, right? Especially for someone that's a new user, that's kind of the threshold of what will you know will start to produce a psychoactive effect. When hemp was legalized uh, under the 2014 Farm Bill and then you know, reaffirmed in the 2018 Farm Bill, the, the premise was that hemp is this benign, non-psychoactive, non-intoxicating commodity that will save our planet. And that's a, a very righteous and, and understandable and, and good narrative. But to now be, to a certain extent, misusing that narrative or, or you know, the, the result of that narrative um, to put out products that compete with marijuana market, uh, uh, marijuana uh, products in the marketplace in state-regulated dispensaries, is it's a problematic uh, optical situation for a lot of folks within the hemp industry. Uh, I was actually just speaking with someone recently. They wanted to put a 15 milligram per serving Delta 9 THC product to market. Uh, and here in Colorado, in the marijuana marketplace, the mandatory uh, or the maximum THC potency cap is 10 per, uh, milligrams per serving. So you're effectively most states. Yeah, so you're putting out a uh, uh, a per serving product that is more potent by 50 percent than the maximum allowed under the marijuana regulations. And so I think there there's a a day of reckoning is too strong of a word. I think there's going to be some uh, you know, harsh truths and realities that on the, the product manufacturing side that the hemp industry is going to have to face in terms of okay, you know we can uh, uh, advocate for this increase in in potency. Um, you know, at the farm level, uh, but that will ultimately lend itself well to this one plant regulation model, right? The more cannabinoids you can grow, because to your point, Joy, on the hemp side, what's the point of increasing to 1.0% for our farmers if we literally need 10% of the acreage necessary? To be honest, there, there legitimately is no point to increasing the threshold at that point because we don't need that acreage. And it, to a certain extent, you can make the argument that you're saving the farmers in that way, saving them from losing their own shirts. Um, but from a standpoint of, you know, thinking towards one plant regulation, it makes sense in the sense of, okay, farmers, you're not the ones who are you know, extracting the cannabinoids. We want you to become as efficient uh, at scale of producing cannabis, not marijuana, not hemp, but cannabis. There, you know, thereafter, it would then be regulated separately based upon intended use. In the short term, sure, I don't have an issue with, um, uh, you know, increasing the you know, THC threshold, I think that's going to be an easier advocacy push uh, for all the various lobbyists and stakeholders um, at play in Washington, D.C. Uh, but I think that has to be separated from, uh, you know, cannabinoids and extracts and, and finished goods, not to suggest that those should not be lawful, but that the for all the science you've mentioned, Joy, none of that science makes sense as to finished products, as New York has provided us an example for. And so I think you're going to almost see divergence between farm and product uh, with respect to the definition of hemp over the coming months and, and year or two. No doubt about it. And 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 so much um, for me, just to piggyback on there. Number one, we are seeing, and, and, and two is a good number, we're, we're seeing a lot of science. And I think we're going to probably find, although, uh, you know, I'm not, I don't have an oracle, Iowa will do their work, but 2.5 is really, looks like what I'm seeing a lot of that number for in terms of 
intoxication. It'll be interesting to see how that goes. Um, the responsible stewardship of this crop. It's why we just saw the USM Roundtable last month put forth a press release saying, you know, we do not c- condone for our members um, or for the industry at all, in general to be marketing products in the name of hemp that are intoxicating or euphoric or causing a euphoric effect or marketed as causing a euphoric effect or marketed for their intoxicating purposes. And and the U.S. Hemp Authority recently came out and said that they will not certify Delta-8 products. Now, of course, we love all of our tetrahydrocannabinols and we love all of our cannabinoids, um, but Delta-8, of course, by and large, in the hemp plant is not produced in, in commercially viable amounts. We're looking at synthetic converted cannabinoids and there's all manner of, there are more clean and passive techniques and then there are more toxic techniques. And so it's, it's an issue. And what, and what we really want is to responsibly steward this plant. We are not here. And I, I say we, I'm always speaking like I'm a plant, but it's 30 years. Give me a break. Sometimes I think I'm a plant. Um, we, you know, we aren't here for intoxication. For the love of God, folks, please avail yourselves of the legal adult use and medical cannabis markets. If you're looking for for the, that type of a of an effect, um, or you need that for your medical condition, but not hemp. And uh, you know, we they're they're under a lot more regulations. The adult use, the legal adult use in medical markets, and for us to be encroaching on it, it is not very diplomatic or gracious. I also though to just to drill into a couple of more points on this 1%, another very practical reality. And and let me know if some of your clients, of course, without naming names, if you've been hearing this from them. And there is also a groundswell of processors saying, listen, guys, even when we get biomass that is at the maximum current threshold of 0.3% Delta 9, it's laborious in terms of just labor materials, the process to, to remedy, remediate the hemp so that we can bring it down the finished product to an allowable amount. And if they're saying, and if you come to me with 1% biomass, I'm probably going to reject it. We're hearing this a lot because you're just going to complicate and and make that process more burdensome. What do you have to say about that? Are you hearing these things from any of your clients? Uh, So far, I I mean, I, I hear some of that, but, you know, I think part of it is also to a certain extent waiting to see there being critical mass in DC, right? Like, you know, there's a lot of this talk internal to the hemp industry, but uh, on the whole, I still think, you know, there, there's still some work to be done in terms of the, the, the critical mass to actually make that move upwards. I mean, certainly on the processor side, if anything, I actually see more commentary around work in progress hemp extract, you know, intermediate hemp extract, the the ensuring that DEA or anyone else isn't gonna come after them you know, when they have those concentrated materials during, you know, the, the stages of processing. So. I mean, certainly, I think that there's plenty of consideration being given from processors, uh, processors at that level. But uh, from from the standpoint of if, if you give the processors the regulatory leeway to you know do their job, even if the THC threshold is increased, um, I think you would see folks get on board with that. But right now, it's you know you can take 0.3% hemp, you process it. That intermediate crude is one, two, uh, you know, I mean, depending on what it is, right? You know, it, it it's going to be multiple times the 0.3% amount. Obviously, that would be concentrated or, or, or uh, you know, further diluted or uh, reworked or whatever uh, before it's, uh, you know, into a finished good. But that that's one of the largest concerns I typically see amongst the processors right now. But to your point, I mean, 
everyone in this industry is doing is running on margins right now. And so I'm certainly appreciative and sensitive to the fact that, you know, that they're trying to make sure that uh, they're not underwater just simply by what biomass they choose to process. Yeah, I mean, in addition to the fact that, you know, they oftentimes, again, we're, we're going to get more sophisticated here as the chips fall and, and science unfolds and the FDA hopefully creates a regulatory framework or is otherwise directed by Congress via H.R. 841 to create uh, that regulatory framework. Um, but, uh, you know, I think the bottom line is that the FDA does not consider synthetic bot botanical constituents to be legally marketed as dietary ingredients or simply to be dietary ingredients. So what we see with this remediated THC is a lot of conversion. And if, and if that starts to become not allowed and we've got this 1% that we're starting with and all this remediated THC, I just, I think we may see some issues there. Now, on an international trade perspective, when I speak with our international partners, as you well know, at Hoban Law Group, there's sort of an international federation uh, that is being formed. We're all so busy dealing with our own countries, but certainly we, we speak Europe, the European Industrial Hemp Association, China, New Zealand, Canada, the Canadian Hemp Trade Alliance, all of that, and the United States. And folks would like to see these national leaders is we're discussing, of course, more of a, a concerted global effort to increase where we're all kind of signing on to one another's efforts. If that's what if, if we want to increase, if the if the industry, the global industry consensus is we need to increase, then then perhaps it could be a concerted global effort as opposed to one country and then another country, because I think another thing that folks maybe not seeing around the corner that if we're at 1%, understand that in all these other developed countries that are still at 0.2 and 0.3, they will consider our products and derivatives from that plant to not be a hemp plant anymore. They will consider it to be derived from marijuana and not eligible for yep. international trade. So some unintended consequences here. Anything you wanted to add on that? I, I entirely agree with you. I mean, the EU finally just got from 0.2 to 0.3%. Now we're asking them to, instead of going up 0.1% to go up 0.7%, you know, I, we, we got some work to do there in terms of advocacy and getting consensus, but I, I entirely agree with you right now, you know, it's a patchwork, thankfully, you know, regulation and or you know, enforcement of regulation across the, the world in many countries is, you know, evolving in a, in a positive way in the sense that, uh, you know, hemp companies are still, you know, able in many cases to freely ship products as regulators start to understand more and more about you know what's going on but as that as that regulation evolves i think we're going to be sensitive to this idea of consistency across the board to your point about synthesis i mean it's not just remediation of thc you know what what cannabinoid are folks synthesizing delta 8 from cbd cbd and so my point the point there is is that if synthesis is a problem if conversion is a problem then it's a problem for just about every cannabinoid in the plant uh, both psychoactive and non-psychoactive. And, and so that's something that, uh, you know, we as an industry have to be mindful of and steward well and very carefully because there are things like the Controlled Substances Analog Act, immediate precursors, uh, cannabimetic agents. That's always a mouthful, right? You know, all these issues that, you know, thankfully there's effectively been discretion to date, but we don't want to kind of compel implication of those analyses just based upon, you know, the nimbleness of, you know, how operators are, are in fact operating. So we have to be thoughtful as to how we're going to op uh, operate within the industry, how we're going to steward the industry, and then ultimately 
how that would be reflected in sensible regulation across the board to make sure that operators can do what they need to do uh, and are not, are not stymied, but that regulators can have confidence in that what's being produced is appropriate for um, you know, going out to the marketplace. Absolutely. Absolutely. And and then when we think about economic stability for the farmer, clearly this this and the and the cannabinoid industry isn't going anywhere because, folks, we have discovered in our lifetimes that we've got these things called endocannabinoid systems. <laughs> they regulate homeostasis. It's the master controller of our bodies. It's like discovering that the world is round and not flat in our lifetime. So the market is only growing and it will continue to grow. As, as as science and and products and quality assurance and all of those things come to bear out, but the issue is that we're at and it's already changing a bit. We've been at this sort of low volume, high margin industry when we talk about CBD and hemp extract, and it is already taking the turn, and will eventually move to high volume, low margin. So when we talk about this increase for one percent. How much economic stability is that going to give in a U.S. farmer when we know that as the infrastructure to process the longest, strongest stock in the world uh, for fiber and as the infrastructure grows to process that nutrient-dense and incredible seed, uh, the largest, the highest digestible form of protein in the entire planet animal kingdom, the perfect ratio of omega-3s and 6 and all the many other things we can do with that seed, as that infrastructure grows, those are the trillion-dollar markets that feed paper, textiles, human and animal nutrition, body care, building materials, biocomposites, and plastic supercapacitors, energy, fuel, wood pellets, charcoal, <laughs> nanotechnology, biomedical applications. Stop me, brother. I'll just keep going. That's, that's where the economic stability is for the farmer, not in extract hemp. And so I, I really just want us to, to just be well-informed as we move forward with these decisions um, during as this movement takes place and as this exciting movement and an exciting uh, expansion of the hemp industries uh, takes place as the crop reemerges here. But, uh, but indeed, I... You know, I just, I, I tell people, if they tell me, I've never planted hemp before and I'm going to grow for extract in 2021, I literally respond to them, do not pass go, do not collect $200. And unless it's a variety trial for some fun reason, do not grow extract hemp. I mean, that's the right answer. And, and you're, you're right in terms of where the stability comes from, uh, you know, in terms of how that correlates to 1.0%, obviously those varieties are going to produce, you know, less uh, or fewer of the, the extracts so that it's going to give you you know, much longer, you know, runway in terms of uh, producing, you know, large industrial uh, type plants or hybrid type varieties where you're going to see a mix of both, right? But at the end of the day, um, you know, th there is somewhat of a contrast between, you know, what's currently being bred right now as plant uh, extract, you know, hemp, uh, you know, which are, you know, far more marijuana-like in their composition uh, versus, uh, you know, industrial type uh, varieties or even hybrid type varieties. And so I, I think that there certainly could be, um, you know, plenty of growth opportunity there if, you know, you're also not at uh, anywhere near at risk of hitting that 0.3% threshold uh, in the same time frame that you would be growing up, you know, extract-based variety. 
such important stuff for us to be thinking about. And, and I can't, you know, when you and I get together, it's almost like there's no time at all because I'm such a nerd. These are my favorite things to talk about. And, and yet how quickly uh, our time has come to a close here. Clearly need to have you back on and you know, I will. I'll look forward to it. Um, is there, okay, me too, brother. Um, is there a question I didn't ask or something that you want to make sure you leave the listeners with that I may not have given you an opportunity to? You know, I, I think it's kind of, you know, in summation, what are the things to look forward to, right? We can talk about all these challenges over the past 18 months, you know, between COVID, uh, commoditization of the CBD pricing, you know, all of these difficult, um, you know, emotional, challenging issues that the industry has faced. What should we look forward to in a positive light? Um, you know, so from that from that perspective, you know, I, I think the, the growth uh, opportunity on the industrial side of the plant certainly provides you know much to hope for and work towards. Um, you know, you see companies like Patagonia and whatnot, of course, you know, uh, doing their part in trying to create some infrastructure. But uh, of course, that's not necessarily going to serve an entire industry or infrastructure for that side of the uh, uh, that side of the hemp industry. And so certainly the collective efforts that can be made to help you know, make the volume uh, and the capacity a reality for purposes of processing and, and ultimately commercializing industrial hemp, uh, the industrial versions of hemp, I think is super important. On the product side of things, you know, despite the relative lack of need for acreage, uh, that aside, I still think that there's plenty of opportunity and you know, product portfolio expansion uh, on the extract side uh, for manufacturers or you know, brands, right? You look at products that are, you know, uh, uh, with high potencies of CBD these days, but CBD may well be normalized in the many multivitamins or supplements that you see, you know, on shelves uh, down the road. What do we need to do to help you know, push that forward is FDA guidance. And so, you know, we've seen, you know, kind of some backwards movement uh, from the Trump administration to the Biden administration, not because of hemp or CBD, but just because of a, you know, presidential transition. Uh, and so it's our hope that you know, later this year or you know, going into next year that we'll see some additional guidance from FDA that will provide confidence and provide that opportunity. And so, you know, again, albeit limited in acreage, at least, it still provides economic opportunity, jobs for processors, for product manufacturers, for brands and things of that nature. Uh, the, the going may not be quite as good as uh, it was you know, three years ago. Um, but that's natural for any emerging marketplace. And, and so now it's time to roll up your sleeves and get to work on, on how to, to uh, edge out everyone else and, and you know, make your, your brand or your, your company what it is uh, on your own. Oh, that is one heck of an awesome summary, Garrett. Man, if you folks out there are looking for uh, literally the world-class national and international leaders in hemp law and legal representation, please go to podconnects, P-O-D-C-O-N-X, for this episode.com so that you can figure out how to find uh, Garrett and the many experts that he manages as managing partner. She said with a giggle because she knows how much work it is to be the managing partner. Garrett, thank you so much for being on. Thank you for everything uh, that same, you do. Same right back to you, Joy. Always a pleasure. Uh, and look forward to the next time. Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. 
Infused, a cannabis talk show, is a -a one-of-a-kind look inside the cannabis industry. Meet the amazing people who make cannabis businesses bloom as they join host Nick with Francesca and Mike for creative cannabis conversations. Get an honest look at the business of cannabis, including trends, best and worst practices, products, education, and advocacy. Whether you're kind of curious or running a cannabis, Infused has can of conversations that count. Infused is available on YouTube and is now streaming as part of the PodConnects network.